Well, welcome again. Uh, it is certainly a cliche, but often cliches are cliches because they're true. And this one is incredibly true. The cliche that the one constant is change. So we get that, right? That's not, that's, I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know. The other part of change, though, is that the biggest variable is people. That often the things that are most <laughs> unsettling, bring upheaval, bring new opportunities. It's not so much circumstances or settings, though those can be important as well. In fact, Pastor Mike uh, may touch on some of those when he speaks next week, which is a change in and of itself. But it's usually people. And certainly, the season that Artisan finds itself in is a season of change. But then again, that's nothing terribly unusual, since as a relatively young church, about three years old or so, that's been the constant, right? Change. And if you were here in the first couple months, you know, all 45 of us, you know, or so, three, three years ago, a month later, was it different? Oh, yes. <laughs> a year later, was it different? We've been in, you know, two and a half different locations, depending on how you count it, um, and the people that have been involved. And for those who are here for the first time, one of the biggest changes we've just gone through is one of our founding pastors, Brian Hake, uh, finished up his ministry run here at Artisan. He preached his last message, which uh, was a great message on calling that you can catch on the podcast. Um, and so that's a change. And it'd be silly for us not to pay attention to the fact that that change affects in our individual lives, in our faith, and certainly as a church community. Some of our families here, you guys have experienced change. Have a couple new additions, right? The Ippolitos with Aliyah. She was born the end of December. Uh, Tim and Joanna Page with Noella, born a couple weeks ago. Do you suppose that the entry of that little light, those little lives into their family is going to change them as people? Literally three weeks ago, Tim and Joanna, at least, weren't parents in the outwardly visible sense of the word. Well, it was a little bit visible, but you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, some of you have uh, experienced some change with, with job upheavals. Or maybe you're going off to experience a new job. You're, you're one of the lucky ones that has a job to go experience, right? I know some folks are not in the job they thought they would be even a few weeks ago. And that's making you question your career, your calling. You know, with the age group here, you know, all the under 30 folks that we have at Artisan don't really know what a career is just yet. They know what jobs are. Uh, careers are that mysterious thing that the rest of us over 30 talk about. Uh, <laughs> but those are changes. And changes take something out of us. They, uh, like I said, they can be unsettling. And so we should pay attention to that. So the one constant is change. Biggest variable, in my mind, is people. And so we're going to look at a scripture tonight that really talks about what we then do with that fact. It's somewhat a mystery why people change. I suppose we could speculate. Hardly matters, though, because it's, again, just a given. But how we deal with those changes, how we handle that, that might be something we can talk about. 
But while we're doing it, it's good to note also that tension that we often find ourselves in. See if you can relate to this, that oftentimes we enjoy changing ourselves, growing, figuring out new things, trying out new stuff, but we don't want other people to change. Sometimes that's true. Go away to college for the first time, learn all this stuff, you now know everything. You come home, and you've changed. But your new empty nester, mom and dad, seem to have a spring in their step and have gone on with their life, and all of a sudden your room is a, is a, is a sewing corner with fishing trophies, and, like, and your parents changed on you. Heck, they might not even be together anymore since you went away to school. You don't like that when other people change, except when the opposite is true. Um, it's, it's my implant. I, um, apparently, I got off script there, and I was buzzed. Uh, all right, back on notes. Uh, the, uh, the opposite can be true as well, though, that we really want other people to change, but we don't want to change. And so it's a tension. So let's flip to Scripture, because often that is more helpful than for us to make up stuff on our own. And the passage I want us to look at is in the book of Acts, chapter 15. You can start flipping there. It's in the New Testament. It's actually the, the second half of a two-volume work that Luke, the gospel writer, put together. You have the Gospel of Luke. That's about the life of Jesus, his ministry. And then he writes this second volume. It's about the life of the early church. A group of people that, I think it's fair to say, experienced a lot of change. And so in Acts 15, verse 36 is where we'll pick it up. But we're looking at a couple guys in particular. Paul and Barnabas. The Apostle Paul and his best friend, his co-worker, his mentor, his partner in ministry, Barnabas. These are a couple guys that have been doing ministry for a while now. In fact, the start of their ministry is interesting in that Barnabas was the one who welcomed Paul, then known as Saul, into the community of faith. See, Saul was the, the Pharisee that was going around arresting Christians and looking on approvingly as the first martyr, Stephen, was crushed to death under a hail of stones. That Saul then has this incredible transforming experience of Christ. And as he approaches some of the Christian communities, understandably, they're a little unsure if they want to welcome him. And Barnabas is a guy that says, no, he's changed, and he's changing, and I'll vouch for him. And out of that relationship, Paul and Barnabas go off to do these incredible, this incredible missionary journey where they start all these churches. They started among non-Jewish people, which is really interesting. And then they stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, defending the rights and the place of the non-Jewish Gentiles in the church, saying, these folks have been changed by Christ. Who are we to try to change them back into Jews when Christ already received them as they are and is changing them the way he wants to, not the way we might want to? And so this is a team, and nothing can pull them apart. Nothing. What's the one constant? Change. What's the biggest variable? People. 
and Paul and Barnabas, his people. So let's see what happens. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. So they've gone on this missionary journey. They've, they've had this incredible, successful defense of the inclusion of, of non-Jewish people into the Christian faith. It says in verse 36, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the believers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas has some ideas he wants to throw in. He says, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Paul had different ideas. I love how it doesn't say Paul didn't want to take him. It says instead, but Paul decided not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. The beginning of verse 39, the disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. That's not supposed to happen with Christians. Certainly not Paul and Barnabas, this unbreakable team that they're parting company and there's this massive change taking place in this community of faith in the lives of both Paul and Barnabas and the people that their lives touch and so the things that we really can't do much about the fact that change is constantly with us that people are the biggest variable but here's your dash of chaos theory in this whole thing but the outcome of that change is undetermined, somewhat depending on what we do. Because those changes can either divide what God wants to see happen or multiply it. And it's a question mark right now. This breaking up of the Paul and Barnabas super team, is this going to divide God's work? Or is there a chance for it to multiply what God is doing? So let's analyze it a little bit. Maybe look at it from Paul's perspective. What are the risks? So before we draw too many spiritual conclusions, let's look at the story as it stands. What are the risks in Paul's mind if they take John Mark along? If he goes along on this second journey, what are some of the things that are risks? Go ahead and shout them out. He will bail yet again. He'll flake. He'll quit again. That's a risk. Any other risks? Uh, Mark himself will have a bad reputation. Sure. Then he risks those who are vouching for him. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Any risk to Mark himself? Again, let's look from Paul's perspective. If we wanted to put it in the best possible light, is there a sense that Paul might be looking out for Mark also? What's there a risk of him going and, let's say, failing a second time, what's the risk to Mark? Loss of faith. He'll doubt himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing to fail the first time. And I've seen this so many times in, in Christians in general, but sadly amongst uh, ministry people in, in a pastorate in particular, that it's one thing to fail once. And there's something about that first failure that usually you can brush yourself off and get right back in there. But the difference between those who go the distance in their faith and those pastors as well who go the distance is not what they do with their first failure, 
It's what they do with the second failure and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And particularly those failures that have nothing to do with moral, ethical, any, just what we planned to have happen didn't happen. And I've seen that take some pastors out of the game where that second failure was such a setback in their minds that they just didn't have it in them to do anymore. And what if Paul rightfully thinks, this is not for Mark right now. And if he fails again, I worry he's done. Let's look at it from Barnabas' perspective. What's the risk of not taking Mark along, of him not having this second chance and the whatever might come out of that? What are the risks perhaps involved with that? He'll never, he'll never succeed. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing to fail once and stay failed. He won't, he won't get back in it. Other risks. What's that? Resentment. Loss of opportunity. What if? Here's a crazy thought. I'm just going to go on a limb on this one. What if Mark has this incredible gift for writing and of really capturing the essence of, of who Christ is and of communicating in such a way that others really hear that and respond and receive that as, as good news? Um, let's use the fancy term. Receive it as, as gospel. What if Mark is really good at putting together a gospel? We'll call it the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> Do you suppose a Gospel of Mark happens with the one failure under his belt? Wow. That's a pretty big risk. So clearly something did happen. and we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So here was the next steps that Barnabas and Paul took. So remember, the disagreement became so sharp doesn't say it was sinful or, or evil, but it was a sharp disagreement. It says they, bar- they parted company. And end of verse 39 picks it up again. And it says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and set out, the believers commending him to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so there's a hint there, isn't there? Still not crystal clear. Is this going to divide or multiply? But at the very least, there's now two teams of people ministering. Where before there was one. And there's hints, actually more than hints. Uh, There's hints about Barnabas, certainly. There's more detail about Mark. But Paul actually mentions Barnabas five more times after this event. One of them, a little bit negative. That's true. Uh, It's when when Paul is, is actually criticizing Peter most strongly. It's when Peter was giving into the peer pressure to, uh, you know, to go sit at the, uh, the cool kids' table with all the other Jews, and Barnabas' peer pressure, he's doing it too, and they refuse to sit with the band geeks and the goths, or in this case, the Visigoths. Ah, there's some barbarian humor for you. And, uh, and so Paul calls both Barnabas and Peter complete hypocrites. So there's that. But the four other times, four out of five 
times that Paul talks about Barnabas, they're more positive. In fact, one of them, he even defends Barnabas' rights and the church's responsibility to provide for Barnabas' basic needs as, as a pastor, as a minister, as a missionary. And it may be after this event, when they're no longer working together, the chronology is a little bit fuzzy, but he says, no, this guy works hard for the money and you need to, you need to pay his dues. But what's more fascinating is what happens with Mark. This loser that Paul kicks to the curb, but that Barnabas takes under his wings. There's haunting string music playing right now. Here's a few hints that we have that Mark might have something in him. Might even have a gospel in him. Who knows? 2 Timothy 4, end of verse 11. Uh, This isn't on the screen. But Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in my ministry. Uh, Sounds a little cold and calculating, but sort of the the very uh, endearing term there that Paul would use of of, uh, of Nesimus in the book of Philemon, where he says he's useful. So Mark is now useful. Then Colossians 4.10, writing from prison, Paul says, Erasticus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So this Mark, something has changed. And what's happened is God's ministry has been multiplied. Then in the midst of this change, two things happen. Paul goes on his mission And Barnabas cares for Mark. And both things go well. And because of that, there's more ministry. There's more good news, not less. But how is that possible? You know, as we look at all the changes that we've already faced, that in a sense we're going through now, though again, you know, thank God, not contentious, not theological, moral, ethical, You have in Paul and Barnabas, I think the part that makes it work is that they have an identical vision, that they're not confused about who Jesus is and that they want to share him with the world, particularly those outside the Jewish tribe. Now, when there's disagreement about who Jesus is and what the Bible says, yeah, that can be divisive and contentious. That's a different set of messages, I think. But often, we're in agreement on a lot of those things in the church. Well, more often, eh, sometimes. We are here. Uh, Sometimes that doesn't go so well, does it? But even though their vision is identical, they choose divergent strategies. So is that okay? Look at the differences here. Paul, who I need to confess, I lean more this way. He is all about the success of the mission. That there's a hill to take and we're going to take it. And that's the most important thing we do. That's the strategy we're going to choose for fulfilling this vision and mission. And some of you are saying, well, of course, that is the most important thing. Then there's Barnabas' perspective. This is, no, we need to focus on the success of the members, those who are involved in this. 
and see that they succeed and they're made whole and they get to take part in this. And the rest of you are saying, well, of course, because that's the right one. And then the two sides, you know, that's great that you want to link arms and kumbaya and have group hugs and trust falls off the stage, but unless we take that hill, it doesn't matter. We have a mission to fulfill. And then there's a perspective that says, that's great that you planted the flag there on the top of that hill, um, but did you see the human carnage all around you? The people you've used up, stepped on, worn out. And so who's right? Well, they both are. And there's something about the way both Paul and Barnabas went at this that was not some weaselly compromise where everyone was equally miserable and the mission wasn't really fulfilled and the members weren't really successful, but everyone could kind of say, we're all in this mild state of misery together, not quite accomplishing a whole lot. Yay, you know. And so, it's a challenge to walk that fine line. As I mentioned, I, I lean towards the mission, that that is the most important thing. So I am incredibly thankful to be part of a team where there's folks that pay attention to the members. And I hope that they're thankful to be part of a team that pays attention to the mission. Because did Paul not care about the members of Christ's body? He cared very much. In fact, that may have been his concern for Mark also. Did Barnabas care about the mission? Well, sure. In fact, he went on to have a very successful one. Barnabas took under his wings the guy who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament and the other guy who wrote one-fourth of the Gospels. That's a pretty good track record. And so when I think of my own life, there are times of significant change that I have to be reminded that change is going to be there, that people are by far the biggest variable, but that I have a choice on whether those changes will divide what God is doing or multiply. You know, I think back in my early ministry experiences which in some ways included some of those first and then second failures, and third and fourth. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned my friend John, John Johnstone. Guy so nice, I named him twice. Uh, he and I had been friends since uh, four years of age. Uh, we're such, uh, such good friends that after first grade, they separated us. Uh, through the rest of elementary school. But John, as I mentioned, was my John the Baptist. He was the one who made the way in the wilderness, pointed me towards Christ. But I had another friend who was my Barnabas. And actually, the three of us were good friends, John, myself, and my friend Andrew. And when I first came to faith in Christ, Andrew was the one that when everyone started locking their doors when I showed up, supposedly changed and changing, Andrew would say, oh, no, no, you, you can... I'll vouch for him. I'm not going to say you can trust him yet, but I'll keep an eye on him. And really, my growth in faith, my inclusion into, into the church community where I came to faith, I'm not sure that would have went as well without Andrew. So we were best of friends. Actually, the unholy trinity of John, Andrew, and myself 
was, uh, it was a sight to behold. And my experience of, of leadership and growing in the gifts God had given me, all those things that happened in my teen years and even into college, Andrew and his family were a huge part of that. And so we went off to college. Uh, I went to one school. Andrew went to another. Eventually, I transferred from a calling to pursue ministry into the school Andrew already was at, Eastern Nazarene College. And the team was back together. And so while at college, we were roommates. Then he was an RA the last couple of years when our friend John also joined us there. Yeah, yes, good times. And, uh, and that was wonderful. But then, again, we went our separate ways after school. I went off to South Portland to be a youth pastor in South Portland, Maine. Andrew came here to Greece, of all places. Uh, God calls people where he will. And Andrew went to Greece to be a youth pastor. I'd rather go to Africa than Greece. But. but then God, in his sense of humor, decided the team was going to get back together. And through a series of events, I ended up back in Rochester doing an internship with church, a church plant. Andrew finished up a youth ministry gig he had. And we decided to plant a church. You may not have heard of it, because uh, it doesn't exist anymore, called New Vision Community Church. A few of you know the history. And we were going to change things. And it was an incredible run. And one of the things that was, that was an unshakable truth was that no matter what, we were in it together. And that wasn't going to change. The one constant is change. <laughs> Biggest variable? Yeah, people. Come to find out, me and Andrew are made of people. And so there came a season at New Vision, not theological, not moral, not ethical, not even strategic in some ways, that Andrew said his season was, was finishing up. And he was going to step down out of his role of leading worship in the band and some of the small group stuff. And I was going to lose my Barnabas. But change happens. And in the midst of that change, there was opportunities. Is this going to divide or multiply? So at the same time, there was another young guy. He was finishing up his senior year at uh, Roberts Wesleyan College. And uh, he was... He was slated to uh, go help a church plant in Las Vegas. And I said to him, you know, you can make some of your mistakes here first if you'd like. <laughs> and uh, what do you think about that? This is actually a kid I'd known uh, as a youth pastor of his in South Portland, Maine. And so he jumped into the role. And I remember that first Sunday when he was leading worship. And it was a change. And it wasn't that the worship and all those things had been bad before, but there was something different. And God knew what he was doing. And his work and his witness was multiplied. Now, that New Vision Community Church no longer exists. But instead of being divided, it did multiply. That young guy and his wife went off to Las Vegas. We seeded a, a church plant that had its own run and its own set of changes that he experienced out there. Uh, we helped seed another church plant that is still going here in the Rochester area with uh, a band leader and others. We were instrumental 
in the reestablishment of the very defunct Campus Crusade for Christ ministry at RIT. We were instrumental in that, uh, with Andy Wheeland being the absolutely the uh, point person leader of that, but resourcing and encouraging and, and shepherding that so that now it's a very vibrant campus ministry. And it was multiplied. And then the core group of that, that church that was, you know, 30 or so people, almost all under the age of 30 at that time, including me, we became the, uh, the super young adult group <laughs> that merged into Crossbridge, that a few of you are from there as well. That ministry then morphed into something called Capex Day, Latin for capable of God. But then this guy out in Las Vegas who had his own set of changes came back to Rochester, joined forces once again. That spun off to start to become a, a church all on its own. And then, in God's incredible timing, that church merged with Quest under the leadership of one of our founding pastors, Brian Hake. And it was a God thing. And there was changes. There's changes now. But God multiplied that stuff. And I may have lost Andrew. I didn't. We just multiplied our separate ways. Anyone know who that... That young kid that went to Vegas and back? Who, who? It was Scott. Our very own Scott Austin. And so God has a sense of humor. He's all about the multiplying. He's not about the division. And so let me read this passage uh, as we start to land this thing. I've said this before many, many times, and I hope to be able to say it Again and again, it is such an encouragement to be a pastor at a church like Artisan where some of the harder passages of Scripture, I get to point to them not as, and see what you did wrong here, <laughs> but more so, you know, things are going pretty well. Let's not get cocky, though, because here's how it could go badly. And so hear these words of Scripture, not as criticism or critique, because I am so encouraged by how this group of people handles change over the years we've been doing this, the few short years, and even a big change like, like having your pastoral staff change up. It's Paul writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. And sadly, these are some folks who specialized in division. It says in verse 10, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Do you see what unites them there? In the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, because everyone has their people at this church. There's Chloe's people and Chloe's people. God save us from ever having Chloe's people at Artisan Church. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. I'm sure Chloe's people were glad to send that along. There are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. Or I belong to Cephas. That's Peter's Aramaic name. Or, here's the trump card. I belong to Christ. Oh, well then. You win, I guess. 
Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Mike or Jason or Scott or Brian or Paul? I added some names in there because you're not. None of those are true. Be united. Have this mind of Christ and the same purpose. But then be honest about the fact that some folks are going to gravitate towards Paul's style. Some are going to like the way that Apollos preaches verse by verse. A few folks are going to really dig Cephas' way of just jumping in the middle of stuff no matter what, making it work. And that's going to be okay. That's not the thing that unifies us. There's all kinds of strategies. It is the body of Christ, not this blob of Christ made up of many parts. And so the challenge is what do we do with the change? So let me ask this. For those who consider artisan your church home, your spiritual family, are you willing to make a commitment on how we'll deal with change? Not that you'll go in lockstep with whatever the current administration, the leadership, whatever fad vibes, way of doing things comes along. If we were a cult, we would ask you, you know, do it this way and only this way. Uh, but as I've said before, the problem with cults is you usually find out you're in one way after it's too late. But, but on the off chance we're not one, we won't be doing that. So if it's not about agreeing on, on doing it exactly the same, would you make this commitment? That whatever changes may come, will you seek to multiply what Christ wants to do and not divide? Now understand, that can take many forms. One of the things they try to drill into us as church planters when we go through training and assessment and batteries of tests, they want to give us soft hearts and hard skins. And they say, know this, that the people you start a church with, look at them, love them, work with them. And then a year later, Almost none of them will still be in the mix. And two years later, absolutely not. It'll be a big turnover. And every person to a man and a woman that's a church planner says, well, sure, statistically, that's true. But not me. And every one of us finds out, not only is it statistically true, it's universally true. The one constant, change. The biggest variable, people. But I am so thankful to God that the changes that I've tended to experience and the people that I've done ministry with and around, more times than not, have used those changes to multiply what Christ is doing. And so I have confidence that the changes that we face and the fact that there's currently three pastors on staff and not four, that Brian and Beck and Caleb and Ari are on a different path that diverges from this one, doesn't mean that the work of Christ has been divided. It means it's in the process of being multiplied. And so if you find 
that what goes on here at Artisan isn't quite a fit. Hear me, this is not a threat or a sneaky way of clearing the decks. It is truly okay to talk to the pastors and others about what that means. And I swear to you, because we've done it before, we will help you find an awesome church where you can be the person Christ has made you to be. Because seriously, we are in this together. But I'd also encourage us not to make those decisions too quickly. Because you may have the new piece to bring here that we need. And that's the tension between changing a lot and changing too much. And so be willing to multiply and not divide. And I think we'll be in pretty good shape. Paul and Barnabas seem to pull it off. And so far, artists and church has as well. And I trust that God's going to continue doing that. Amen? Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and somewhat amazed that you are a God, the God, who is never changing and yet always changing to meet us where we are. That you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and whose mercies are new every morning. You are the God who is always doing a new thing. And your character, your holiness, your righteousness, your forgiveness, those are unchanging. But we believe in the God of the Bible, not some Greek philosophical concept. And so we worship a God who becomes the variable And if you are unwilling to change in any way, who is Jesus? So we thank you that you are the most changed changer and that you took on our full humanity and entered this jacked up equation that we could not solve. And you made a way through the change. And it is messy and painful and gut-wrenching and grace-filled. And we come out the other side of it more and not less for having let you change us from the inside out. And so be with us as a church as we continue to face the new challenges and the new opportunities, as we do it in ways that are timeless and always seeking to be relevant. And help us be a people who look to the incredible faithful example of men and women, folks like Barnabas and Paul, who multiplied your work and did not divide it. We pray these things in the unchanging and always relevant name of Christ. Amen. Amen. And so as you continue to respond for the rest of worship, the table of Christ is perhaps one of those most fitting symbols of of the change God was willing to put himself through and to offer to us. It's the place where Christ said, this is my body, broken for you, yet undivided, shared with his his followers, those men and women who gathered. And so if you're a follower of Christ, you are invited to tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine of the juice, 
and take it and be nourished, knowing that it will never run out. It will always multiply. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, probably the most spiritual thing you could do is not approach that table. Because it doesn't mean anything. And that's, honestly, that's okay. This is a place where you can figure that stuff out. But my suspicion is, the reason you're here, how even if a friend or a spouse dragged you along, is that you're living in that tension where you desperately want to change, but you don't want to be changed. And the invitation to you is in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And if that's a change that you want to see happen, you're welcome to pray with one of the pastors. I'm going to hang out there in the way back corner. And I would invite you, come talk to one of us. We'll pray for the change that Christ might work in your life. Okay? So embrace some change and continue worshiping as God leads you.